Greetings to everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Godspeak podcast. I'm the Archon, and I'll be joined in a second by the Greek as we continue our talks about religion and the supernatural. We're moving on from Western and Central Asian belief systems to the Eastern ones, and I hope people continue to find our talks informative. So let's get into it. Godspeak.com has no political, religious, or corporate affiliations and is completely managed by myself. Nothing has changed there. So thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Greek. Yeah, greetings. Hi there. Yes, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while since we did the last one, um, but I trust you've been keeping well. Uh-huh. Yeah, as expected. So, um... Yeah, I'm happy that we're resuming the podcast. It would be a shame not to conclude the last few episodes. Um, I've planned for us to talk about Eastern religions today, which is something that's become very adulterated in the West. I guess it's because Europeans and North Americans are content with the microwave versions of those belief systems. Is that an observance that you've come across in your studies of these subjects, that it's a bit watered down? Well, it's worse than watered down. It's just a, a an Eastern religion in name only. But if we look at what the, let's say the indigenous Easterners are doing with it, it's almost the same, but they have a little more history or actually being the history, uh, culture, and uh, uh, basically ethos of those people. So uh, I always have a saying, it's just like these, I, I, in parentheses, these white people are not happy with Judaism and Christianity. They, they either go to Islam or Buddhism, typically. You know, uh, and and it's, what's offered, the gates that they go through are pretty poor. In other words, what they go through is the, uh, let's say, without being too conspiratorial, uh, premeditated, you know, the intelligence agencies are very concerned about people's belief systems, right? So basically hijacked uh, and filtered through intelligence agencies or financial systems or what's called surface government, right? So they're getting that watered-down version of it. It's not even, quote-unquote, spiritual in any sense. Yeah, I never really looked into that much as far as the historicity. In the 20th century, you saw a lot of Swamis and um, Buddhist leaders that came over to the West and found a lot of popularity with celebrities and stuff. But I never quite did look into the intelligence aspect of that. Yes, they. they I, I say there's no intelligence there anyway in the intelligence agencies, and they know that. Uh uh, give you a, a short little quirk. Someone that has a lot of uh, Greek speak um, downloads. It's no one you know, actually. Uh, Ex uh, spouse was uh, intelligence agency, uh, not for, not U.S. And the first they thought it was subversive, and uh, then they found out actually it was so enlightening that they made duplicates of it to bring it to their. Uh, colleagues to, and to show them how much they really are in the dark and this is an intelligence agency person right so uh, i thought that was quite funny yeah perhaps a bit of an indictment on who they think they are or what they think they're doing oh if i'm making a comment i call them the panty sniffers Creature. i'm sure they appreciate it yeah yeah <laughs> But in any case, um, I guess a good starting point in talking about modern Eastern religions is to mention that they were largely formed during the Axial period when the world's belief systems were changing. So maybe we can start by looking at the groups that were active in those regions leading up to that period. So we have the nomadic Indo-Iranians who are said to have migrated south from the Eurasian steppes 
with the Iranian group moving into current day Iran and Iraq and the other group going into India. Um, Self-designated themselves as Arya, which means or said to mean the noble ones and the oldest texts for them are the Rig Veda and the Avesta. Um, obviously, the Aryan designation became known in the 20th century for reasons connected to the Nazis. But Greek, has your research turned up anything notable about them as a people group? Uh, that those terms are more of a philosophy because uh, and an ideology because the peoples have been so intermixed from all the various invasions of, like for example the Greeks you know they've been so intermixed right uh, so uh, yeah so the people themselves I'm sure there's a little bit of a smattering of quote quote unquote those bloodlines left somewhat but it's more of an ideology or philosophy that's uh, been brought down. You know, to uh, what what's left of it today. Their chief god, though the Indo-Iranians, he they had an overarching sky god called Diaush or Pitfer, as the academics have put it, who later became sidelined in favor of other gods like the Devas, um, which meant shining ones, or the Asuras, which were the oath gods. And it, there seems to be this common occurrence that the chief sky god around this period of the third millennium BC was known by everybody, but then he becomes irrelevant to, to everybody all over the world. Have you ever looked into that? I tend to be uh, biased, let's say, in my narrative towards the biblical text. In other words, uh, I just see what, what happened. Maybe they said, uh, look what happened to the poor Hebrews. We should probably leave that one alone, right? So when you deal with uh, very high levels of manifest power, it, it's not for the public. Like if you see high power, high tension, you know, power lines going through the countryside, not everybody wants to go and uh, mess around with that, right? You call in a specialist, right? High voltage, right? So uh, what I did was focus on that uh, biblical text specifically, as many would know, because it's the only text and only, well, besides its universal acceptance, is is the only text that has so much information about so many specific things, including history. Uh, that does not uh, exclude the Eastern culture from its involvement in that, but it's not mentioned in what's called the biblical text, you see. I believe they were on the periphery, just like uh, anything that happens in the world today is known everywhere through what's called media. They had their form of media as well back then. It was a little slower, perhaps. But everyone on the planet pretty much knew what was going on with everyone else on the planet, right? And uh, let's just hearken back to the timelines here. So we're looking at uh, major events uh, around 2000 BC, uh, you know, based on what civilizations left today, 1000 BC, and then around 2000 years ago, major events that were known. Uh, it might have put some people off because of its direct involvement with only a certain group known as the Hebrews or the Judeans and such, Israel. And uh, they probably wanted to just leave it alone. And for good reason, because uh, it was not directed to them directly anyway, even though it would involve them indirectly or directly if they decided it to, see, by allegiance. So there's more of a universal aspect uh, to the biblical text even though it doesn't directly mention any other peoples as being directly involved. So, and just like the sky gods are the balls, right? So just, just to add, to talk about a particular sky god is just like rehashing what's in the biblical text anyway. 
Indeed. Um, I guess my suspicion is that perhaps that sky god might intersect with the chief god in the, the biblical text, but there's no way to know because the names are different. Uh, but just because it ends up at the top of the hierarchy. But I guess he, he could also be the Baal storm god. I don't know. But to scrounge out whatever we can from looking specifically at the at the Eastern stuff. Um, so we know that the group that ends up in Pakistan and later India are the Indo-Aryans. And that they ran into the Indus civilization there. Who we don't know a ton mm -hmm. about because their writing hasn't been deciphered. Um, and they don't didn't have any temples. But the Vedas are the oldest Aryan texts. I believe there's four of them, with the Rig Veda being the, the oldest, which also predates the Axial Age, from what I can tell. Have you looked into the Vedas at all at any point in your studies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what happens with any group that's formed on this planet because of the what people are taught to desire when they're here be, uh, is to gain power and control. And just a, a caveat and a, a replay note, footnote, the earth has been controlled by malevolent entities. In other words, the gods of the world are malevolent or indifferent. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, higher gods. We're talking about the ones that are involved here. Um, so there's no benevolence in any of these. Uh, in other words, what's active in the culture. You know, it's all f uh, a product of the malevolent ones, quote unquote. Uh, just to tangentially address that, there, if anyone wants to do some side reading just to get a flavor of what I'm what I've gotten out of it. There's a book called uh, Darkness Over Tibet by uh, something Ilian. Ilian is the author, like Million, but without the M. And he, he, it's uh, written in the 1930s. It reads like fiction, but it's not. Uh, and you'll get an idea of what happens to any culture. You know, and I could just basically tell you he was sojourning there, disguised as Tibetan, and basically found out that anyone in Tibet in the 1930s uh, was told that white people were evil, incarnation of the devil. He ends up finding a secret city where uh, it's run by magic and uh, cannibalism and pretty much zombie-like people. Um, and evidence of that is still, you know, today uh, available. You could go online. There's not much of it about it. Some people say it's a fictional work. He did not write it as a fictional work. So... Uh, parallel stories to the Vatican. Uh, if you go, let's, which is Western, if you go to the Vatican, physically go there, and you run into anyone there, on a one-to-one, -one, ask them what they practice in the Vatican, they'll say it's Satanism. It doesn't matter who you ask, as long as it's a one-on-one, -on -one, honest. I mean, you could run into the any of the bishops. You spend more than 15 minutes with them. If he sees you're okay, it's Satanism. He'll tell you that. He won't use that term, but indirectly. The people who use that term would be like the guys who are hired to clean the toilets in the Vatican. He'll tell you, oh, yeah, these guys are satanic for sure. Right. So uh, very, very similar to what I just brought up with the darkness over Tibet. Very, very similar to what you'll see with the Mormons, for example, or the Judeans, right, and what goes on in the large synagogues, which are sort of less centralized. They don't have a centralized uh, authority. Uh, same thing goes on with the Buddhists. Same thing goes on, right? Uh, so w what I'm trying to sum up here is the earth is uh, the worst. Just imagine what, how bad you think it could be. It's much worse than that even, right? But things are still functioning for now. So there's no positive side to any of these religions, not a one. No, I follow. And that book is by Theodore Ilian. Um, it's still quite 
talked about online, so people can check that out. Um, okay. Yeah, do the audio book. Yeah. yeah, plug in some headphones. It's, I think that uh, someone did a pretty poor reading of it. It's about a four or five hour listening. Listen, I have I have it here somewhere in hard copy. Just to give some context to the Vedas, it's worth noting that they aren't a unified volume of writing like the Bible or seemingly like the Quran. Right. So written over several centuries, sometimes, well, oftentimes contradicts itself when it comes to right. topics that later evolved because of sectarianism. So an example is the subject of death, where the Rig Veda offers various accounts of a vague but not painful afterlife that's ruled over by the god of death called Yama. Doesn't say anything about reincarnation from what I can see in terms of being reborn as a mortal. That seems to be an axial development that grew out of Hinduism. Uh, but we do see talk of a resurrection with a new body that's possibly made of fire and the old body disperses back to nature. Um, I just wanted to read a few short verses that illustrate that. You have a funeral hymn that addresses the deceased. Go forth on those ancient paths on which our ancient fathers have passed beyond. Unite with Yama in the highest heaven. Go back home again, merge with a glorious body. Um, Rig Veda 1014, verse 7. Another hymn is addressed to the funeral fire, Agni. Do not burn him entirely, Agni. Do not consume his skin or his flesh. When you have cooked him perfectly, only then send him forth to the fathers. So yeah, I mean, in, in studying the Vedas, you have, have you at any point, Greek, noticed that they have this contradictory element, especially with the Upanishads, like the Upanishads are not the Vedas, and they very much seem opposed um, or have you found anything illuminating about the, what it has to say? Again, uh, I was using the biblical text as a reference, as a central point to see what can be harmonized, and much can be harmonized. A year ago, I had a lot to say about the Veda texts, and the, it, leading all the way, you know, the Mahabharatas and all the various Puranas and things like that, much to say about it. But now I, I'm sort of drawing a blank. I'm pretty much uh, thinking... It, it's trying to define the body, the, the, the spirit, you know, the mind and the soul and uh, give people some kind of awareness of those things. It does delineate the way I just said. Uh, and it's basically a, philo a philosophy. And uh, as time goes on, I've, and the more here's the thing, the more I look into it, the less interest I have. Well, yeah, I mean, from my end, I found it to be a bit complex because of all the contradictions and how long it is and the ancient languages are not as well addressed as with the Semitic writings. So if you don't read ancient Pali, you can't really get into the Buddhist stuff. So right. There's a bit of a learning curve there as well that seems to keep people from getting to the truth, unless you really want to be an academic or a hardcore um, devotee. I think it. I think it toys around with our reality and our concept of reality more than most people realize. What it does is it shows that uh, reality is sort of liquid or flexible or it's not real in a sense as we see it. But because we're experiencing what we're experiencing, it's real in that sense. It's real if it's happening to you. In other words, uh, the, the, if you're good or bad, it's real. Uh, it's real good or bad. But there really is no good or bad if people are not in a state where they uh, are subject to it. It's uh, Well, here's the thing. This is what if I were to sum it up. Very simply, like I've, I think I've summed up the entire scripture very simply also. It has a lot to do with uh, perseverance and patience uh, and being uh, careful and careful and understanding and being responsible. Uh, but it has a lot to do with patience. There's no fast way. There's no um, – there, there, as if there almost is no way. It just is. And it's trying to give understanding. But uh, 
you have to see that even before it was formalized, if you read uh, a lot of the ancient, what's, what are known as the ancient Greek philosophers, they were on a similar path as well in terms of their narrative. Yes, I have seen that comparison drawn particularly between the the, Indian, the ancient Indians and the ancient Greeks as being at the forefront of that sort of philosophic or monistic contemplation. Right. Well, here's the way to sum up everything, is if you're here on Earth, you did something that was pretty screwed up, or someone pretty screwed up sent you here to be screwed up. It's not a good thing. It doesn't mean it's, um, well, it's terminal, <clears throat> meaning it'll come to an end. That's why recently I've been saying life is too long, right? Because once you figure out what's going on here, <clears throat> in, in, in a very uh, collective objective way, not what is truly objective, but in a collective way, if you start looking at many, many things and what they're supposed to be and what they are, uh, that's what I call objectivity, right? You can see that contrast, is that there's something wrong. If you're here, there is, this is a temporal, temporal zone in our cosmic history that things have gone wrong and you're here. Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, I give as a metaphor to young people in the future quote unquote, whatever afterlife you feel is designed for your belief, uh, you'll have a conversation somewhere and saying that you once were on earth, if you do recall that, and everyone will stop and look at you and say, you are on earth? Wow, tell us about how fucked up it was. That's how I would sum things up. And these, and these ideologies, whether it's the ancient Greek, even the Hindu, you know, trying to explain it by the force of these major gods, let's say, the Buddhist philosophy of it, uh, the biblical text or whatever, is trying to somehow just uh, move us along until uh, we don't have to be moved along this way anymore. Well, I mean, wrapping up on the sort of uh, the Vedic strain of things. So, I mean, once classical Hinduism comes along, the focus moves from the Vedas to the Upanishads, which were also composed by multiple people, uh, I guess, 800 to 400 BC-ish. Um, they aren't as systematic or internally consistent, as you would expect, but they do represent a very different view to the to the Vedas. They're more contemplative and thoughtful, and seem to be more towards the sort of philo philosophical or ascetic end of things, rather than the priestly stuff that the, the Vedas talks about. And I think that's how the notion of samsara slash reincarnation starts to come into play. Um, but again, the Upanishads say different things about it. One of them says that Samsara takes place in the mind. Another one says that human cremation converts the corpse into smoke that becomes food for the gods. So there's no real consensus. The older ones, I think, say you get a new body that's like a god. Um, well, hold on. I'm going to don't. stop you. I'm going to stop you there just to save you some labor on that. The just back to the biblical idea. Once you're a resurrected body, you have a body that is spiritual, which is the mind. So that little thing you just said about. The resurrection is in the mind is, is yes it is of the spirit so that is correct it's just a matter of translation and how you want to grab that right so that's why it's important to understand the fundamental narrative they're really all the same and there's no physical uh domain that you are limited to when you are reincarnated or resurrected right and this is very clear in the, what's called the new testament as well yeah i, th I think there's a a scene where the Christ is trying to explain that to Nicodemus. He's like, you don't understand when you're, you know, when you're born of the spirit, it's like the wind, right? So there's no physical. So if the resurrection doesn't exist and it's in the mind, there's something wrong with that translation because that is along the proper line. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you will solely be a spirit. You can take on a physical form if you like. There mm -hmm. are, there are many accounts in ancient times of uh, these demons that do take on physical form, you know, whether it's, attracting enough moisture in the air to form what's a ghost-like figure or take possession 
or actually forming, you know, uh, or manifesting through something else. Those are the lower forms. But on a higher level, when you when you're reborn or redone, you will be uh, an animated spirit versus a disanimated spirit. That's what we would be now. If you don't have a body, you're disanimated. It's just like being asleep. This is a type or quality of spirit we have now, meaning humans. I follow. Yeah, and I guess that's where the Upanishads suffer from the the contradictions because as time goes on, they start to say that it doesn't, you know, you could be re reborn as a dog, right? So somewhere along the lines, I guess a, a new generation takes place and they just start to write whatever that doesn't um, line up with the older material. Um, right, and that's that's uh, that's like Christianity, where you have the like an evangelistic Christian and a Baptist or a Mormon or whatever, they all have their own little line, but you won't find it when in the uh, fundamental text, right? That's a typical thing. That's it, what it is. It's uh, my reality is better than your reality. So if you want to be better, you have to follow my reality. It's all business. It's just business. You know, it's hard to talk about religion without talking about the business aspect, right? It's like if you want to sell meat to people, you have to learn about, let's say, keeping chickens or herding cattle. But if you're keeping chickens and herding cattle, you have to think about the meat industry. See, it goes both ways, right? So if you're going to have religion put out to the masses that's not kept in secret, it's the same thing. You herd the masses for their meat, right? So, Yeah, just to piggyback off the, the mind aspect that you mentioned before we go into Buddhism. Um, so one of the key Sanskrit words that seemed to have undergone a change in the Axial Age was the Atman, which is right. said to mean, you know, solar spirit. We won't nitpick. From what I can tell, almost all of the, at least the Upanishadic sages, were reluctant to identify the Atman with the mind because they thought the mind was something unsettled or capricious. Um, one of them said, it's not the mind we should want to know, but the thinker. So there's this idea that the thing yeah. behind the mind was of interest, and the consensus seems to be that there's a lower self that comprises the body, and at least the mind in this dimension, and then there's a higher self that consists of the Atman, which is apparently something immortal. That's in the unseen. Okay, there's... Little children have toy fire trucks because they can't have a real one, right? A full-scale one. So once humans are aware of a higher existence, let's say, what they're left with actually toying with is a toy. So that's what they're trying to make sense of. Right? Right. And I think I think if you pay more attention to the original Pali text of Buddhism, they get into that a bit more. Um, so to move on to that, uh, we have the historical Buddha, whose teachings, I guess, were preserved orally about three to four hundred years after his death. And then you have the religious Buddha that develops out of myth and sectarianism. So just to be brief, on the historical side, you have Siddhartha Gautama, which is said to have been born 490 to 563 BC into a privileged family, allegedly near the current border of India and Nepal. And then around the age of 30, he goes through a life-changing experience that, that leads to a new spiritual understanding, teaches it to his followers for several decades, lives until it's around 80, and then beyond that, we don't really know much. Um, you have to look at the Pali Canon if you want any more historical dependable stuff. Have you looked at the, the Pali Canon yeah. at all yourself? Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, why am I reading this? How it is, you know, it sounds good. It sounds good. It's fairly understandable if you settle into it, you know, if you don't try to bring what you've been raised with, you know, and you have to have a loose understanding of the culture, right, uh, to uh, to appreciate it. But it doesn't give me what the, I find in the biblical text. Even though the biblical text, again, is I keep going back, I use it as a reference, 
about a narrow group of people, right, and their happenings, but the underlying story and the narrative is pretty much the same without uh, being uh, about a narrow group of people, but it airs on the philosophy side. So, and also you have to understand the naturalistic religions too. They don't directly reference nature as much as uh, the other, you know, the, the idea of worshiping nature, but, you know, finding balance. Yeah. Yeah. Those religions tend to be less elaborated. I mean, well, we can touch briefly on things like Shinto, which does yeah, try to do that a bit more, but just mm -hmm. to give a brief overview of the central Buddhist teachings. So the guy, allegedly had two teachers who fell short in showing him how to achieve this liberation from samsara. So he eventually attained it himself and went to teach what came to be called the Four Noble Truths to his disciples. Uh, being that I'm not able to delve into the original Pali, I have to, I can only talk about the conventional understandings of those ideas. But mm -hmm. I do know that some people like Ken Wheeler, who understand the original languages, will tell you that those notions are inaccurately rendered in the modern teachings. Right, but here's a comment on Ken Wheeler, not to harp on him. He doesn't discern between the spirit and the soul. That's like the first fundamental, uh, you can have guys like that that sound smart, right, and uh, are crafty, but they're really, there's a difference between someone who is smart and someone who sounds smart. It's kind of like if you are talking about biblical stuff, we brought up, without bringing up people like Michael Heiser, uh, you're an academic and you're supposedly providing something but you're not telling people that they've been fooled, that there's no crucifixion. It's right there in the text. You know, it's just, just because it says it in the official King James doesn't mean that, it, right, logically and reasonably is there. So you have all these people out there with an agenda, and it's not like they're saying Ken Wheeler or Michael Heiser really, I don't know about Michael Heiser, but on the Christian side, but because uh, he knows if he tells, if he knows the truth, he would be eating out of a garbage can. Uh, uh, Ken Wheeler seems to be a little more independent, but I think he's just, uh, he had a mentor. All these people, they have mentors in their lives or someone that sparked them on, and they're just basically uh, seeing it through their eyes. They're, they don't have the ability to objectify. He's done good stuff with magnetism. I'm not being harsh on him. I'm just telling you what I think is going on. But you you got to lay down in any spiritual discussion or any kind of body of work, the differences. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like... Uh, jumping into literature uh, class without knowing the alphabet. And the alphabet of spirituality is you have the mind, the body, and the soul, which is the metabolism. Uh, the mind is the spirit, the body is the, carn the carnal aspect, and the soul is the metabolism. And the soul is interchangeable with anything else that's alive. Typically, even in the insect world, you, you know, insect uh, breeds, right? Uh, plants are different. But uh, they they uh, breathe as well. So you know it's very interesting that uh, this particular incarnation of most things you need that soul and the body to animate the spirit. And nobody nobody gets into that. It's fascinating. There's here's the thing. I'm gonna pat myself on the back and send myself some flowers for saying for been saying this for years and years and years. If you don't have the fundamentals down right, the ABCs or the one two threes, the three R's, writing arithmetic right. Uh, in reason, uh, you're, you're not going to get far. You're just spinning wheels, and it's all a bunch of BS out there. Otherwise, you know, if there wasn't, we wouldn't be doing this, right? Well, in terms of the Buddhism aspect, um, so we have these, you know, noble truths. I'll just run through them very quickly. Um, the first being that human existence is dukkha, which is often translated as suffering, or some people have said to mean, you know, disappointment. But 
you know, the failure of reality to conform to our expectations, where even if you get what you want, it doesn't satisfy because desires only beget more desires. And then you have the second but you one. Shouldn't be, you shouldn't be desiring what you shouldn't be doing anyway. In other yes. words, if you, if you were uh, raised in a family that did this and you don't do that, you're a bad boy, right? So you should be doing what everybody else is doing in a, in a broader sense, right? If you, it's a perfect slave uh, system uh, ideology. That's why, for example, you know they, the 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 castles, you know, they would build moats and protect uh, things to protect themselves in Europe from the peasants until they started investing in Christianity, which says, "Ah, you're a miserable slob here, but you'll have you'll be in heaven in the afterlife," and they stopped attacking the castles, right? The castles stopped being built with moats and protective things until they uh, the wealthy people said this we need to invest in this christian stuff which is not biblical by the way and to calm the masses but the the idea of karma and all these other things uh and yeah uh, escaping um yeah yeah if you it's as simple as something like if you come from a family of fishermen you have to be a fisherman right mm -hmm. if if you if you end up if becoming, let's say, um, something else, and even though you're good at it, you you basically screwed up. Even if you're good at it, so it's very interesting uh, how how you could see through the 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 uh, aspects of it. Right, and so the second noble truth is what is said to cause suffering, which is tanha, which is commonly translated as desire. Some people have said thirst, uh, but basically that. Um, cravings turn into compulsions and cause people to misapprehend the nature of the world and themselves. Um, and then the third truth is that suffering can only end by the abolition of craving through nirvana, which I guess is misconceived as a place that one goes, but it's actually said to be the point where one stops craving for reality to be other than what it is, uh, where you comprehend that there's a reality beyond the carnal existence and you're able to fuse yourself with that absolute and then the fourth noble truth, which is basically that the way to end suffering is through a certain eight, eightfold methodology, which I'm not going to outline all of them because it'd be a slog, but anybody can read up on them. So yeah, again, it's hard to really present an accurate view of what you know this thing is if you don't look at the, the original languages. But well, there you go. You can. It's echoed again. You know how they say the biblical Christ was free of sin. Well, uh, sin is when you miss the mark. Right. So uh, if you're if you say you're going to climb a flight of stairs and you don't, you just sinned. Right. It's it's there's no moral attachment to it. Right. If you say I'm going to go out and kill 100 people today and you kill 99, you sinned. Right. <laughs> you see the whether you're the moral, you know, basically you're following a law or something is different. But people don't understand that. Uh, so if you have no desire, the Christ was without sin because he had no desires. He's not like when I grow up, I'm going to play, be a rock star, right? He had no desires here. This it's very clear if you read the text, right? He came to, he knew what he had to do here. Uh, so that's why he's without sin because he achieved everything that he set out to do, meaning on a micro and macro scale. You see, very simple if you understand that. So if you have no desires, you can't sin. I'm not saying do nothing. 
But if you were actually in a position where you would do nothing, you would be without sin. If you did nothing and had no desire, because if you do nothing, you, let's say you do the minimal amount, you're confined to a room. You might say, well, I'm going to walk across the, this room and touch the wall. If you don't, you just sinned. You see, it's very simple. The biblical aspect of sinning it, it only applies to those who are in certain covenant, right? Or to agree to follow, live this way. And when they didn't, that was falling short, you see. It's very simple. It has nothing to do with what people think it is. And not to say, I guess, that the Christ didn't have any ambitions, but all of, he allowed all of his ambitions to be fed to him from, you know, the source. The ambition that he had was fulfilled, so he was without sin. So right. in other words, you can sin if you say in the next five seconds, I'm going to walk across the room and touch the wall. If you don't do that, you sin. Or, or if you say in 30 years, I'm going to do this. Well, when that time comes, it's all about timing also, right? So you can have a one day, one week, one year, 10 year plan. As long as you make the mark on each one, there's no sin. And the ambition is fine. It's okay to have the ambition as long as when the time comes, that ambition is fulfilled. And so one of the last things um, I want to touch on regarding Buddhism is the notion of the self, which seems to be quite misapprehended. Um, so even though the word self might be used linguistically um, or for linguistic convenience, like the reflexive myself, uh, the Buddha seems to convey that it's an unskillful way to think of things, you know, because you're conceiving of reality as having substance when actually the universe is more made up of energy modalities. And this leads to the notion of anatman, which is in the conventional understanding is said to mean that there isn't a soul or spirit. But, you know, again, to reference Ken Wheeler, he's exposited that anatman doesn't mean that you don't have a spirit, but simply that humans are not their carnal incarnations and the spirit is non-local somewhere else in the unseen realm. Or, or you can further on say it is spirit that does not require a body or a soul to be animate. But that would freak Ken Wheeler out. So... <laughs> <laughs> you, you could say that also. I should jump on his live stream one day and ask, see what he says. But yeah, another way that I've sort of heard of it conceptualized is that the self can be thought of like the rainbow and that the rainbow isn't a substantial reality in the way that it appears. It's more of an optical illusion that's created by factors, you know, like sunlight and rain and the position of the observer. So nobody ever reaches the end of the rainbow because once the observer moves his position, uh, the rainbow okay. starts to fade away. I'm going to interject. Uh, rainbows are not optical illusions because they're optical. So in the optical realm, they're real. That's why we say optical illusion, which is kind of an oxymoron. Oh, okay, yeah. There is no such thing as an optical illusion. Yeah, that's another oxymoron that we use. There's no such thing as an optical illusion because when you optical say optical, it means it's only perceivable. Right, it's a phenom It's phenomenal versus noumenal, you know, nominal, um, measurable. Uh, as, as we understand to measure things, and it can't be managed like we. Uh, I've formed rainbows, by the way, using a, a, hum a very fine mist on it. When the sun is out, you can see it with a garden hose if you set it on the fine mist. Uh, but you, it's so anything that's optical is not uh, an illusion because it's in the optical realm. It's supposed to be that way, right? It's not supposed to be real in, in any other way. So, but if it is optical, it's not an illusion because it's optical. You see, I hope yes. that grounded people. No, of course. Hey, by the way, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go on any any live stream because uh, here I'll tell you why, and I'll give this advice to most people. These people that are well known, what there, what happens if you go look in the comments and follow any of these people on the internet or whatever? Uh, and this is also before the internet. I noticed they they uh, sound smart. They're really not that smart, and they surround themselves with uh, NPCs. 
I call them Sims, you know, people that are not, you know, NPCs, whatever. That's a, a meme. Uh, just, you know, people that, you know, fair, normal, you know, they have nothing going on. And uh, because they follow all these people around them or around them, you know, they're great, right? So it's a, so yeah, if you, any of these people, if you go into the live, you'll see they're just NPCs all around them. So when, if you, if you start in, trying to interact with them and you're not an NPC, it'll, that's outside of his, what he's used to having, you see, if that makes any sense. Yes, um, the non-player character phenomenon is quite widespread, um, and I have tried interacting with a few people on social media to no success. Although if you tip them, they're, they're more likely to talk, talk to you if you throw in $5. Well, that's what, it, thing. that's what they do. What else are they good for but their meat, their pound of flesh? I mean, I, don't, uh, I have not pursued any more public or even private uh, group calls because I didn't find people that were, uh, you know, how would you say... Uh, productive enough you know i'm looking for people to jam with to to as equals not people to repeat what i'm saying and not contribute anything beyond uh, what is brought forward right so mm -hmm. even a even a, a stupid potluck you can bring your macaroni salad with mini marshmallows or jello with mini whatever you bring just bring something and i i yeah so yes it is a uh, dire prospects in that regard but yes it may change um, so yeah, the Buddha didn't leave any successors, and his teachings were kept in oral tradition for some centuries until the Pali Canon. Uh, so what we have today are the orange-robed Theravadins as the oldest extant school. Um, and in the first century AD, another school called Mayana emerged, which was exported to China, and it's the most popular variety today. Out of that came the Vajrayana, which is the religion of the Dalai Lama. So, I mean, Greek, how would you, you know, sum up the Buddhist situation today? Is there anything useful that we can derive from it? At all? No, it's ritual. Uh, just like, let's say you went to, uh, you mentioned it was popular in China, to a Chinese farmer. You spend a week with him doing what he does, and you ask him why he does this. And he'll just say, oh, that's just what I will show, and I just do it. It's ritual, right? Most of what people do is ritual. They don't know why they're doing it. Just ask them, right? I was shown this way. This is how it's done. You're bothering me. Leave me alone. Too many questions. So people are raised and groomed to perform these rituals, right? Uh, you know, a lady in an expensive car um, uh, doesn't know much about uh, cars, right? Automobiles, motorized wagons. She knows that if she pushes this pedal, it goes. If she pushes this pedal, it stops. And she turns this wheel, it goes left. Turns this wheel, it goes right. That's all she knows. It's a ritual, right? Most people that whatever they do in their religious life, their personal life, their work life is a ritual. They're basically NPCs, again, in that sense. So it's all ritual. So what, what the modern, all the modern religions, look at the, uh, the people that go to church on Sunday. It's a ritual. They don't know anything. If they did, it wouldn't be there. Uh, they'd burn the place down if they knew what, was going, what it was about. So the, the, the whole thing, it's, it's all basically down to ritual again, and the Asians uh, are just as human as the rest. Yes, unfortunately so. But we can look at a few other things which have derived their popularity from the Asian region. Confucianism is one of them. So we have Confucius, who was born between 551 and 479 BC. Of course, his name is not Confucius. That's a Latinized term created by 17th century Jesuit missionaries. His real name was said to be something like Kantze. And he was born into poverty, but later wanted to attain political power, or at least serve as an advisor to a king. He was unable to gain that position, so ultimately his life is mostly about teaching his followers. Um, he claimed no originality for his own ideas and preferred to uh, convey wisdom from antiquity, similar to the Buddha. 
Um, and he's also reported as having told the students, to those who are not eager to learn, I do not explain anything. Greek, do you know anything like, about Confucianism? Yeah, I love I love his stuff. I love his attitude. But I just don't want to be Confucius. But I totally, in other words, there's the idealistic way of being, and then there's the Confucian way, which is the way here. I mean, uh, if you understood, again, this for private, not public consumption, what really goes on, you'd be like, oh, crap, this is some really bad stuff. But what's shown in public is absolutely correct. It fits the people. You know, uh, you do what you're told. The, the nobleman is the nobleman and you're the servant. Be thankful, right? Just shut up and whatever, right? Because it, it was already Confucianism, Confucianism shows to me that even back then they knew they had figured out what people like and, you know, how people want to be, which is not good. And it has a simple order. But again, most of Confucianism, I had gone, uh, there's a Confucius Square in Chinatown in New York City, and I, I remember uh, congregating with some people at some of their meeting places, and it was like, wow, what a bunch of morons, but they, they were so well-disciplined and so well-ordered and fairly content in their lives that I said, this is great, you know, and anyone could look up what Confucianism is about and just keep it in light of most people, you know, like the followers of Michael Heiser or Ken Wheeler or whatever, or any uh, popular person, you'll notice that uh, whatever religion, uh, like Michael Heiser being Christian, Ken Wheeler uh, being uh, whatever, Buddhism, uh, the Confucius, they're actually the, the rules and guidelines of Confucianism apply to both. Yes, and in part because he didn't seem to have much to say about, you know, the spirit world or the gods or anything like that. It was more about conduct. And so, yeah, the official book for Confucianism is the Analects, which is a yeah, collection I of sayings. I want to interject oh, again. Ahead. Why would you say anything about the spirit world if, I, as I said earlier, if you were here, it's because something went wrong. It's kind of like, what are you doing here? You must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. So why would he talk about the spirit world? It would be, uh, it would be non-productive. It would, set, it would unwind people. Right. Because even in, in any text, once you start understanding and contemplating what is going on and collectively objectify it, meaning that the more you try to be objective, the more you can see, uh, you'll say, holy crap, what am I doing here? I shouldn't. No one should be in this. State. We, From a central point of view about myself, something went wrong. I must you see. So why would he talk about the spirit world? I think it's senseless. Um I think for most people, again, it's senseless, uh, and and unless you give them something to do, you know, like if you ask people why they're Freemasons, it's because they like showing up to the ceremonies, because they're a bunch of losers, right? And they're whatever jobs they have, they know that it doesn't matter if he's a neurosurgeon making two million a year, he knows he's a loser, he knows that he's in a track, you know, the money's fake and it's all bullshit, right? So. I don't mean, you know, someone panhandling, which actually has more freedom, but um, the uh, the aspect of knowing that you're here, something is wrong, and it's wrong that you're here, why would you talk about the divine in any in any uh, way that I start identifying more than, uh, more than Confucius does? Okay, so, um, yeah, information on Confucius has to be gleaned from the Analects, which is a collection of sayings compiled by his followers after his death. Uh, probably reflects them more than him, because I think only the first half of the book reportedly comes from him. Um, have you, you know, looked into any Confucian writings at all, 
No, I have not. Like I said, in the uh, mid-80s, I had been around people who would profess to follow that. And I noticed that it was not merely uh, – they would. it was a ritual that they that they did because their parents did. And they were not uh, well-versed in most of it. And I did a cursory investigation of what it was about and always had it in the back of my head. But I not read the analytics or anything like that. But as I investigated more and more through life, I'm like, oh, Confucius had it right. You know, these people are like uh, on this planet or want to be treated like cattle. How do I know? Well, look at them. And he has a perfect uh, outline for them. The king is the king. You're the slave is the slave or the servant or whatever office you have in life. Be happy with it and be honored about the ones that are higher than you uh, and happy with them, whether they're good or bad. doesn't quite say that directly, but yeah. And uh, don't abuse the ones below you and vice versa. So. And concerning um, what you said earlier about, you know, we were talking about the the gods. Um, yeah, he had very little to say about that. And one of his students um, said that he didn't, you know, speak about miracles or gods. And then another student asked, you know, how do you serve the gods? And Confucius is like, well, you can't even serve your fellow humans. Why are you asking about the gods? Um, mm -hmm. So he had this notion of keeping them at a distance. I think he did say you should give them reverence, but that people shouldn't expect rewards from them. I think one of his quotes were, those who are humane rest content with their humaneness. So in other words, being good is its own reward. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you have these figures like Confucius and also the Buddha who had no interest in the gods and didn't seek to deify themselves, yet they ended up as religious figures centuries after they died. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the, the business part. Uh, you want to sell meat to people, what do you know about um, herding cattle and vice versa? Once you herd enough cattle, then you got to sell their meat. That's religion. But uh, don't, mis don't misunderstand what I say just because I focus on the biblical narrative and the gods there. Uh, yes, plural, there are gods in the biblical narrative. Um, it's not for everyone. I never uh, even suggest anyone should even read the biblical text because uh, they're going to get lost after the word the. So it's... Uh, uh, only those who really have a strong desire to be objective should do it. So, yeah. and uh, and all the gods, even the Bible, are apathetic uh, to humans uh, unless it, it it involves humans in their plan. So, indeed. Um, mm -hmm. Also, touching on another thing that you'd mentioned, um, Confucius had conceived of several different ideal types of humans. So, the highest was the sage, who was the complete embodiment of Confucian values. Although Confucius would later say that he never met a sage and had given up hope of doing so, and he didn't consider himself one, although his followers did. Um, and then I think, you know, in order to have a category that people could attain to, he derived the idea of the gentleman, the respectable gentleman or the nobleman, which denotes somebody who's attained a noble character and superior status in society. And then one of the defining traits of the gentleman is the ren, often translated as humaneness or virtuous benevolence. Um, he doesn't really define it in the Analects, but he discusses people who have it. And, you know, basically it involves following his version of the golden rule, which is do not impose on onto others what you don't want them to oppose onto yourself. Onto right. You. Now, the reason he, you don't define it is very simple. The reason you don't define it is because there might be an upcoming industry that might partake in something that you 
might have sheds a, ne a negative light on. And then once that new industry develops and has the monetary and uh, capability and the power behind it, it will eliminate your philosophy and eliminate you, cancel you out, right? It's very, it's very wise from a business perspective not to really say what's good or bad. Right. And then ironically... So that, you have to be ambiguous. Yeah. And ironically, that is exactly what happens when Mao comes to power. They suppress Confucianism. But like this idea, you know, of the golden rule, you know, you find some version of it in every major civilization, which I guess if you date the Exodus to around 14 or 1500 BC, that would be the earliest source in Leviticus 1918. But, mm -hmm. you know, Confucius seems to have his own version of that, which is interesting. Well, look, if whether you're in a subservient, servient or noble position, you want everyone to do well, because if you're the guy who's at the bottom shoveling shit for a living, uh, his interest, uh, his well-being is in the interest of the nobleman. That's obvious, right? Because the nobleman shits. And if, the, if there isn't a shits uh, shoveler, he's going to be drowning in his own. You see, so you want uh, it, it's only logical and reasonable beyond the, the divine. You don't need the divine to understand that you want everyone to be happy and content in what they're doing and to not be, you know, infirm. Uh, you you want the guy who's removing trash and or burying dead bodies to be well and able to do so because if you're very wealthy and there isn't anyone to do that job you you're gonna your life will be miserable too you see an example is you know everyone's like oh look at Dubai look at those you know like seven star hotels right now it's beyond five star right those are shit towers man. There's no sewer. Do you know there's no sewer system in those megaplex hotels that are like ultra luxury? There's no sewer system. So if the trucks, there's a line of trucks that shows up at four in the morning every day to pick up all the waste. Right. So if those trucks don't show up, there'll be these these guys with the gold plated Rolls Royces will be drowning in their own feces. Do you see? And I'm saying I'm using this is true. You can look. Well, it's kind of hard to find it, but. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, for the first three, four thousand years of civilization, people are just either dead broke and peasants or rich and aristocrats or monarchs. And now in the last 50, 60, maybe 70 years, you have this middle class that rises and it's like, why does it behoove the elites to have them? But then when you explain that, well, it actually behooves them because, you know, we all serve a purpose well, of, of keeping a system alive that benefits everybody, then it makes sense. No, what they did was they eliminated things that are that are possible to be scarce, like money. So they eliminated money and great, you know, they're basically drawing all the money from people's signatures, right? So it was unlimited money. And once the people accepted that without questioning it, they created a Disneyland, a Disney World for about 80 years. Well, let's say 100 years. But it's not fair to say 100 years because of the depression. That's when they pulled, you know, because people didn't have credit cards or checking accounts before the 1930s. It was just uh, banknotes. So the way they did the depression in all countries is they people would go to the bank. If you had a business, you'd go to the bank and you have to would take notes from the bank to pay the workers. Well, you got the business owners went to the bank. That's why if you look at old movies in every business office, there's a big ass safe. If you watch old movies, right, every shop or factory or whatever, you see the boss's room, you know, the boss's office and there's a big, huge safe in there. That's for pay, payday. So these people, businesses would go to the banks to get notes to pay their workers because you don't give, give a worker a check and be like, what the hell is this? Uh, you know, you call the police on you. Uh, 
there was no the bank says sorry we don't have any notes so the no one could pay their workers and the workers didn't get paid so how are they going to right so that's how you make a depression right so that's why if on Ocelli and the Greek I said you can't crash the system because it's already been crashed what you can do is withhold uh, you have to physically stop people from doing anything thus the lockdowns right because money is unlimited there's no scarcity in money there is no money it's credit so this was all these machinations went on until the 40s so if you go 1940s to 20 that's about 80 years so you've been living in a Disneyland because of this uh, credit system right everyone you know can seemingly afford anything if they work hard and 80 years is a pretty long run to be at Disneyland or Disney World or a fictional you know reality talk about simulation this is a simulation within the simulation so that's why I was so content to see the lockdowns and the pandemic and all this stuff even though there's no pandemic you know a biological one uh, because it's like great finally 80 years worth of Disney World is coming to an end you know going back to how humans are control and the reason by the way you um you do credits the the they don't tell people they don't emphasize that there is no money and it comes from your signature is to control misery right so you give a loose outlet to those that you want um to be wealthy and you restrict and punish those that you don't want to be wealthy by restrict by, by their own ignorance right that's the only reason there's fiat currency is to control misery it's not a Star Trek uh, world where they bring someone, you know, in the Star Trek series, they bring someone from the past. Where's, where's your money? Oh, we don't use money anymore. Well, that means we don't control people's misery. If they're miserable, it's because they brought it upon themselves and over mismanagement or lack of responsibility, not because there's an overarching part of society that can do that, known as bankers or surface government or whatever, elites. And a system of ignorance. So... Hmm. So they, it's over, and it's great. I mean, to see the capital, it's not really capitalism, it's capitalizing on ignorance. All of it is. Look how many people, again, I gave the Dubai example, these seven-star hotels, most luxurious in the world. Yeah, they're basically shit towers. The tanks, if the tanks aren't emptied every day, no one's going to go in there because they have to be vented. You, you know what happens if you have a 50,000-gallon tank of uh, full of uh, feces and urine and you try to seal it off? You, you know what's going to happen in a couple of days, right? I hope, hope you understand the idea of pressure. <laughs> yeah, it looks so, Yeah, it'll blow a crater, what have you. Is it? Yeah, we had uh, you know, 40 tons of crap explode in Dubai. Uh, what's all brown everywhere? So it's all – it's not an illusion. It's it's real, but it, it's it's a – Disneyland is not an illusion. You go to there's a guy in a Mickey Mouse suit. You have the fairy castle or whatever the you know whatever they have. It's not, it's not an illusionary. It's a, it's an imposed simulation. It's it's um, well I, and and it's and they're at fault. People don't want to take responsibility. They're NPCs. Again, go to all the popular YouTubers. Look at their followers. Look at the comments. There's not one, not a one, that is plausible uh, in being correct. Indeed, the state of things today. Yeah. But I also see a parallel between Confucius's notion of the unattainable sage with Plato's philosopher king. Apparently you have this archetype that different people spoke about, but no one is able to attain to. And it makes me wonder, you know, if that could be taken as a red herring a bit, because even Confucius had to deal with certain criticisms. Like there's a story about a man who worked as a gatekeeper who inquired about Confucius saying, is that the guy who is working towards a goal, the realization of which he knows to be hopeless? end quote 
you know so i just find it interesting that you have this archetype that it's not a god it's not an alien it's a person but it's impossible to become this person that gets this level of wisdom and conduct well it's like the groucho marx thing i would never join a club that would have me as a member right in other words if you attain that level you you would uh, no one would know about it because you would go out and live by yourself away from everyone because mm. you just couldn't you wouldn't stand you couldn't stand them think about it so they do i would i would say indirectly not positively but i would suggest that those people did exist but they never uh, took any prominent uh, popularity because uh, I mean look look at the populace it's no different now than it was back then no, that who is... would want to rule over these people yeah. at any time in history and anywhere in, in, in history and, and I'm being realistic most people don't like what I'm saying but they know it's true and those that like what I'm saying and know is true well more to more power to you really because you're gonna need it I know it's an, it, that is probably one of the more less elaborated aspects of that that Oh, if I became a philosopher king, I wouldn't want to be a king because my subjects suck. Right. Hmm. I I get away all the time in public. People I don't know. I'd be at the shops, and if something com- political or philosophical conversation comes up, I say, "Well, there's a new society coming," and they all say, "Yeah, we know." I say, but none of you are suitable for it. The people that are here now are not suitable for the next society. They got to go. Sorry, I'm not making this stuff up. So. Uh, yeah, and they were like, "Yeah, I guess so." And I'm like, "That means you, Jack." You know, so yeah. So who? What is there to rule over? There's nothing to rule over. Well, more on that later uh, when we cover that in later episodes. Um, to wrap up on the Confucianism bit, his answer to the social and political problems of his day seemed to be this idea of cultivating people of virtue. Um, I think he felt that the problems facing China were too entrenched to be legislated away or policed away. And the real issue was that you have people of poor character and callousness, especially those in in power. So if only they could practice the art of good moral self-cultivation, then the more virtuous rulers would have that trickle down to the people, Um, which is why I think Confucius said, quote, keep them in line with punishments and the common people will stay out of trouble, but will have no sense of shame. Guide them by virtue and they will, besides having a sense of shame, reform themselves, end quote. So yeah, that was his idea of getting human beings to obey the unenforceable by teaching them, you know, the right thing. You know, what are your thoughts yes. on this methodology? Exactly. Yeah. Well, here here's a small example. Uh, you have a family with young children, and uh, before they go to school, the children do get an idea of language, morality, rules, and things like that. They go to school, and the school teaches uh, something contrary to that, and they come home. So that puts the child in a schizophrenic position, meaning a torn mind, right? Do I do what they tell me in school? I do what the parents say, you see? So you have to have a uniform consciousness in order for that to work. And it could be malevolent and benevolent. And unless the only way to to judge what's malevolent or benevolent is to have a firm uh, baseline. So if you don't have a firm baseline or allegiance to any covenant, there is no good or bad. It's like the guy who robs the bank uh, gets away with it is good. But, oh, he almost got away with it. The police busted him. So the police are bad. But people watching that saying, oh, the guy who robbed the bank is getting away with it is bad. And the police are good. So which one is it? I'm just saying, forget about you. You were never taught it was wrong to steal, you see. 
once you're taught it was wrong to steal, then it becomes more clear. So you have to have a baseline. So to conclude, um, Confucianism, it ended up being suppressed during the Chen Dynasty, but then during the Han Dynasty of 200 BC to 200 AD, it became the state religion and was required by officials to pass civil service exams. Uh, eventually, in the first century AD, they started building temples to Confucius, and I think he was actually deified in 1906. And then Mao came and took over and suppressed it because it was said to be backwards or anti-revolutionary. And then it flourished again in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, yeah, and by the way, there is no revolution. That's a, another oxymoron. There's no such thing. Uh, what was it, the rock and roll band who meet the new boss, same as the old boss? There's no... The overarching forces that are behind what goes on on the surface uh, do not accept revolution. In other words, you have to be more powerful than them to have real revolution. And that's coming. You know, you need a cosmic police. So, yeah, we'll wrap up the podcast by looking at Taoism, I guess, which is um, it's said that there's two primary types. You have the philosoph philosophical Taoism, which was associated with the Tao Te Ching and practiced by the intellectual class. And then you have religious Taoism that was more around rituals and temples and meant for the common people. Uh, but in either case, Taoism was seen as a response to the same social political problems that Confucius addressed, but the Taoists had the opposite solutions for a lot of those things. How learned are you in the Taoist work? Pretty well. Okay. Pretty well. I think it provided a, a, a natural philosophy or a real science that's usable that I use in my life every day. The concept of yin and yang. Hmm. The uh, the uh, the workings. Uh, the reason you should understand yin and yang is you have the ability of accurate predictability. So if you have, for example, from a chemical point of view, if you understand the yang or yin qualities of one element and the yang and yin elements of another, you can predict what will happen when you put them together before you do so. It's very simple, and it works pretty much across the perceivable universe. And uh, I've used that with great success in any project that I've done um, through through since the mid '80s. Yep. So I'll give an example. My wife, she it's cold here, and um, I like it when she's barefoot, and she'll walk on a ceramic floor because you know she she does yoga. She's very athletic. And I'll say, put something on your feet. She goes, my feet are hot. I don't feel cold. I said, I know you don't feel cold right now, but what'll happen is. Uh, the cold on the hot feet will tell the body to release some yin. And the way the body does that is by trying to increase vacuum, developing mucus, and what people call you feel like you have a cold. And it doesn't happen immediately. It's because right now your your body's readjusting to this yin and yang influence, and the next day or two, you're going to feel like you're coming down with a cold. It's kind of like little children, they go out and play in the rain, and the parents are like, no, you can't do that coming away. I feel fine. The rain will will tell the body that it's, it needs to release some yin energy or yin product. And in order to do that, you have to develop mucus and uh, maybe a rise in temperature when people interpret that as a cold. It doesn't happen right away, right? If you go out underdressed in a cold climate, you, you'll catch a cold is what they typically say, right? You don't catch it. It's just the body releasing yin product because of the excess yin from the cold. You see, so you have this great predictability with this i'm just using the health aspect as an example right no that's very useful it makes it practically accessible for people yeah i mean if we look at the philosophical side of taoism which is often dated to you know third or fourth century bc you have this character lao tzu who is said to have written the Tao Te jing around the sixth century bc we don't know much about him 
his alleged biography was written in the Han, Han Dynasty. It says he worked in the government archives. And then as he got older, he became more frustrated with the government and city life and decided to retire into solitude. Um, so as he was leaving the city on a buffalo, the keeper of the Jade Gate asked him to leave a remembrance of his wisdom. And so Lapte wrote this text with about 5,000 characters that became the Tao Te Ching. Of course, none of this has any historical basis since the academics consider him to be a fictional character that was just created to oppose Confucius. But again, you know, you have this sage archetype. Mm -hmm. Right. And the thing is about the historical basis or not, which in many cases can be validated if people were honest or the authorities were honest, which they're not. Because the authorities, again, the surface authorities, I'm not speaking against them. I'm just telling you what's going on are merely a show. If you've ever heard of them, them historically or seen an image or whatever, they have no power, period. That's why, for example, when you go into the biblical text, uh, everything is misrepresented. Everything is misidentified because those that, are the, that have the power that are spoken of in the biblical text are not represented in the world. It, it has to be hidden. It's just how it is um, in this particular era or run of ages. So uh, the, the main point then is whether it can be historically verified or not is irrelevant, is what is trying to be communicated and is that communication useful? It doesn't matter. You can have that in fiction. I mean, how many fictional films are made that are very relevant as criticism to the present day society, but they're fictional films. It doesn't matter. What is being communicated is relevant, you see. No, I follow. Well, in the interest of time, I won't expound too much on, on Taoism. Uh, I'll just touch on the notion of the Tao. Sure. So you have this concept used in many forms of Chinese philosophy, and it's actually a topic of debate amongst the various schools. The Tao is not really defined in the Tao Te Ching, exactly like Confucius. They don't seem to want to define these things, but it's been translated as the way, or more likely the proper way. Um, when Confucius talked about it, it's been said to mean, you know, the steps towards becoming a sage or the path to social harmony. For the Taoists themselves, it seems to mean the way of nature, uh, suggesting, you know, that it's the source of all things. Uh, the, the Tao Te Ching does say to not try to comprehend the Tao too concretely and that it's not amenable to complete understanding, which seems to suggest that maybe it's made up of two parts, things that can be discussed and things that can't, um, hence, yes. you know, hence alluding to the ineffable aspect of reality that's beyond grasping. Um, I think it does also say in chapter 56, those who know don't talk about it and those who talk about it don't know. Um, end quote. Right. That's right. That's why I always stress the learn yin and yang. So you have good predictability, accurate predictability in any, any situation. That's a bit of a funny thing. I, I guess you have to contemplate it a lot to really get to it because it can't. Right. Like for, for example, if you contemplate it and you understand it again, from a chemical side, you will say we're nitrogen breathers, not oxygen breathers. Yes, we require oxygen in the body, but we're not oxygen breathers. Or nitrogen breathers. And then once you understand how nitrogen becomes oxygen and its byproducts in that process, well, now you understand the soul from a chemical perspective, right? And we don't have to talk about Shintoism because if you're not Japanese, it's not relevant. Well, I was going to mention just very briefly that when it comes to that, you, you know, you have this poly, let's just say polytheistic religion that revolves around the kami or supernatural entities that are believed to inhabit all things, which I guess makes it a bit animistic. Uh, well, it's it's less. I think it's less than supernatural. It would be the divine, like uh, uh, something great is it just like uh, uh, someone leaves a footprint on the beach. Uh, you know, they're not the footprint, but it's the result of them walking on the beach. 
uh, great things that you see, like we call the seven wonders of the world, in Shintoism, they wouldn't be called wonders, they would be called kami. Those things have great kami. In other words, divine inspiration, divine influence, or direct divine influence, or direct divine manifestation. But you know, see the divine, you see what it manifests. Famous terms are like the kami kazi. Kazi means wind, and kami means divine, right? And those people were sacrifices. They didn't. They had sacrifice to the wind god, so might as well sacrifice them by crashing into the enemy ship. It had nothing to do with. Well, eventually, then they put rockets under them and broke the sound barrier and done stuff like that, crashing into ships. If you look at some photographs of Kamikaze ship, you'll see the water protrude for half a mile around the ship, you know, like that vaporization that happens on the surface when you have a supersonic explosion. Anyway, those men had gone through ritual. They wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't really a weapon, but it was uh, to target uh the ship if you're going to sacrifice someone anyway, but it was to sacrifice the wind god, which they wanted to take control of anyway. So, uh, which they used later on, which is not in history too much. If you could deal with the rantings of a guy called Douglas Dietrich, he talks about it a lot. If you could deal with him, his rantings, um, not a very sane individual, but nonetheless, his information is pretty good. Um, but who is sane anyway? Uh, Shintoism, again, I think just to emphasize, is for, only for Japanese people. That's why most people think that Japanese are Buddhist. It's for the non-Japanese. I guess that's still fairly rigid. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit hard of a thing to grasp. It's, not, it's a religion that's not said to have a founder. No official sacred texts in the strict sense. No fixed dogmas. So it's, it's been incorporated into their culture and way of life to the point where it's mm -hmm. hard to pinpoint where the central points of power originate from. Oh, you can. I just mentioned earlier, uh, the, the people of power, uh, you can call them people, uh, are not known. So once they put something out, the author is unknown. That's how you know it came from a place of power. Okay. Like primary examples, like for example, Christianity. A fundamental Christian will only accept an authorized version of King James. So that, you see, which is, you know, crap. Right? There's no one out there that can interpret uh, or talk about what's held in the Hebraic scriptures or what's mishmash is left of the New Testament. It's not a one. No one can talk about what's in there with accuracy. They have to make stuff up around it and religions around it and divert people because there's true power there in terms of the knowledge. I mean, I believe you've said before that many Asian religions have this they have the characteristic of not really worshiping gods per se, but just, this, you know, certain spirits or entities or manifestations. Would Shinto fall into that category? Yeah. Uh-huh. The divine the power of heaven. Uh, rightly so, because you're just going to confuse the <laughs> the cattle. You know, they're going to, you don't want enough of these people on this planet through history and now realizing that they're here because something went wrong. They took a wrong turn and ended up here. That's the last thing. You know, everything will fall apart. I mean, it's okay if a few thousand people know that, not believe it, but know it. But when millions start knowing that, I think society will, civilization, not it will fall apart. Yeah, certainly that would be um, a pivotal turning point, um, presumably to the negative, as you say. It, it would be like do a film with a, a bus or an airplane that uh, – uh, goes somewhere it's not supposed to be and people know they're where they're not supposed to be uh how would you form a movie around that pretty easy right 
the theme is the theme is you, you know you'll have the the short-tempered guy you'll have the guy who tries to stay happy you'll have the one that panics you'll you'll have the one that takes advantage eventually they all form a murderous group and kill someone uh it's the same story like lord of the flies over and over and over that's that's what the whole planet will become like if people figured out what's really going on do you want that i don't no i'd rather live in uh, live in peace for now until yeah you want to you keep them deluded yeah it's like going to a hospital ward where full of gunshot victims. Do you want to take their morphine away or fentanyl? They'll be screaming and biting their tongues and and jumping out of windows. And you see, you got to keep them. Who is it? Uh, the opiate of the people. You got to provide these people. And they love they love being misinformed and being lied to. And I'm not. I'm putting that together because I'm just seeing society, and it's not going to change until the society is wiped. Reset, not the reset that these uh, uh, idiots are talking about, uh, but the real one that's going to involve cosmic forces. Yes, there's a lot uh, coming that we'll be talking about in probably the next episode or two. Um, But to conclude on this one, you know, the last ancient religion I wanted to mention was that of the Bon or the Bern, the indigenous Mm -hmm. religion of Tibet that was, I think, absorbed into the Buddhist stuff. It's it's still distinct, I think, if you go to that region, but it's... it's, uh, lost some of its contours um you've mentioned in the past that it retained some worthwhile aspects of truth can you elaborate on that a bit i was just thinking about that and nothing i can elaborate on at the moment without really getting into a long uh, winded explanation of uh, of that because it has to do a lot with um geography right who the tibetans are their 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 culture and how their culture was formed and if you understand Tibet, uh, reading that Theodore Ilian uh, book might give some insight to what happens uh, on any with any society on Earth, and ultimately leads to some really nasty stuff, because um, all it does on the Bon is create a hopefulness that the predatory aspects of being here are abstained, abstained from you, but yeah, but how to cope with them and deal with them as they as they follow through, you know. Well, in other words, uh, this part of the universe that we are in is ruled and run by some extremely nasty beings, and uh, they have a very uh, organized way of um, manifesting their nastiness that's acceptable to humanity. I should say that, and the book Bon encompasses that. You'll see a little bit more of it if you if you folks read that Darkness Over Tibet. Well, I think we've said as much as we can about the Eastern stuff, so we can probably conclude things. Personally, I don't think that there's anything that I want to ask any more questions about. So if you want to offer any concluding remarks, we can wrap it up. No, that's pretty much it. I think the best uh, – the I, I always reinstate that if you're here on Earth, you, you took a wrong turn somewhere. Uh, and the rest would be just specific commentary on something very specific, like perhaps I've done hopefully uh, – on things you've asked yes. so with that said maybe we'll do another one soon sooner than later yeah so um thank you to everybody who tuned in for this episode it's been uh, a pleasure to talk as usual and we'll probably be back for two or three more before we wrap this up 